Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Christina Darnell filling in today for Natasha Smith, also coming to you from Charlotte. And we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Each week, Ministry Watch brings you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, news that we examine from a Christian worldview perspective. Our goal is to help us become better stewards of the resources that God has entrusted to us. On today's program, the United Methodist Church, which has faced a split for years, finally cracks. And we continue our Shining Light series with a story about a program that helps at-risk boys become responsible men. And the Supreme Court gives religious liberty a boost. We begin today with the story of a con man who has defrauded investors out of $35 million by targeting the members of a church in California. Yeah, in 2009, a con man bilked members at Bethel Church in Redding, California, out of more than $650,000. Now, two men peddling a Ponzi scheme have reportedly struck the controversial megachurch again, this time defrauding investors of $35 million between 2015 and 2020. Accused in a recently unsealed 31-count indictment by the Department of Justice are 44-year-old Matthew Piercy and his alleged accomplice, 67-year-old Kenneth Winton. Piercy is a congregate of Bethel Church, and Winton describes himself as a God-lover on his Facebook page, where he often posts scripture and inspirational thoughts. Warren, you've been covering these kinds of frauds for years. So is this sort of thing common? Well, I think it's fair to say that it's not common, but when it does happen, it does tend to look about like this. You you have, in this case, two guys who use their so-called Christian commitment and the relationships they develop through church to cause people to let their guards down. Often, they'll promise investment returns that are greater than you can get from legitimate investment sources. Well, and that appears to be what's happened here. The Department of Justice said Piercy used his two companies, Family Wealth Legacy and Zola, to solicit funds from investors using a variety of false and misleading statements. And they said they had a special trading algorithm that gave them an advantage with their investments. Well, I should say, Christina, that that's another common strategy of people who want to commit fraud. They claim that they have what I call in my book, faith-based fraud, a black box, a secret formula. They often say that they can't share their secret formula or others might start using it and take away their advantage. Their competitive edge would slip away. Um, That's exactly what Bernie Madoff did. That's what Alan Stanford uh, said as well. These are two of the biggest financial frauds in history and two that I covered in the book, Faith-Based Fraud. But when that happens, when someone says they have a secret formula, my advice is to run for the hills. Don't give them any of your money. Warren, you mentioned that this is the second time that Bethel Church in California has had a fraud like this go through its membership. And the last time really wasn't that long ago. It was in 2009. Yeah, churches are susceptible to what experts call affinity fraud, a scam that spreads in a tight-knit community because people trust each other. Uh, In this case, Bethel's theological beliefs may have also contributed. The church promotes the prosperity gospel and uh, teaches faith healing in its School of Supernatural Ministry. In my research for the book Faith-Based Fraud, 
I found that while these kinds of frauds can occur anywhere, there's a tight-knit community, they tend to be more common in communities that do, in fact, promote a prosperity gospel. Okay, so do you have any advice for our listeners when it comes to this sort of thing? Yeah, first, if someone is offering something that is too good to be true, then it almost always is. The reason these sorts of schemes succeed is greed. And I don't mean just the greed of the of the fraudsters, the people that are, you know, trying to perpetuate the fraud, but I mean the people who invest, they're greedy too. Wealth is not bad, but get rich slowly, not not get rich quick. Um, That's the way most people, in fact, do get wealthy. And secondly, I would say do your research. Just because you meet someone in church doesn't mean that they're trustworthy, doesn't mean that they know about investing. Uh, You should ask all the questions of someone you meet in church that you would also ask any other investment advisor, and you should expect good answers. A reputable investment advisor expects these kinds of hard questions, and he or she will have really good answers. Don't let the fact that you meet someone in church cause you, again, to let your guard down. Yeah, that sounds like really good advice. Warren, Ministry Watch posted another financial fraud story this week, but this next one comes from Africa. Yeah, it does. It's a story that comes to us from our uh, editorial partner, Religion Unplugged. Uh, Through their Uganda-based reporter, we learned that police in Uganda had Uh, are holding a prominent pastor who's been accused of working with top government officials there to scam more than one million U.S. dollars from the public. An anti-corruption unit in Uganda arrested Sarajay Sesimanda of Revival Church Bombo earlier this month. He was caught trying to flee the country for Tanzania. Wow. And I understand that this scandal could involve top government officials as well. Yeah, the authorities are looking for two other key suspects in the scam, a pastor and a lawyer. Several other government officials attached to the president's office have already been summoned and interrogated by the police in relation to this scandal. Okay, so how did this scam work? Well, Sesimanda and a group of senior pastors and government officials allegedly formed an organization called Hands Across the Water Initiative Uganda. Sounds pretty innocent. Uh, They solicit funds from churches and other folks, individuals, but instead of putting it in the bank account of the Hands Across the World Initiative Uganda, They put it in their own bank accounts. Uh, Sesimanda was the leader of the organization, which included a network of pastors from all around the country. Many didn't know that the organization was a scam and went on to promote it within their own organizations. In fact, in the end, thousands of Ugandans who contributed to the organization were told that their money would give them access to government programs that included scholarships and training trips abroad, or they would help other people take such programs. One trip promised to take 200 pastors to Israel. Warren, this is one of those stories that when I hear it, I just wonder why would anyone fall for it? Well, that's right. Uh, You know, in the words of the Dire Straits song, it sounds like money for nothing. But one other characteristic of these schemes uh, is that there's usually just barely enough of a relationship to reality to be plausible. Again, in faith-based fraud, I call it the plausibility factor. So, for example, I noticed that when I went to Israel a couple of years ago, there were lots of groups from Africa. These groups were led 
by their pastors, who usually were able to come for free if they would bring other members of their church as paying customers. By the way, this happens a lot here in the United States. When you hear about a church taking a group of folks to Israel, the pastor's usually going for free because he's going to help lead the tour, and he has promoted the tour within his church. So the practice of giving pastors free trips to Israel to familiarize them with Israel and make them, in effect, better salespeople with their own congregations, well, that's just not that unusual. In fact, in the travel industry, they even have a, an expression for it. It's called a fam trip or a familiarization trip. But in this case, the pastor in question, Sesimanda, was collecting money from paying customers up front for the trips. Usually, the money was used to finance his own lavish lifestyle and then didn't deliver on the promised trips or access to government programs. In fact, that's how he was called. People started complaining. In fact, he was caught because those kinds of things could only last so long before people do start complaining, and now he's in custody. Well, let's come back home to the United States, Warren, and talk a bit about the United Methodists. Yeah, a group of progressive United Methodists announced this past Sunday that they're forming a new Methodist denomination. They're calling it Liberation Methodist Connection, or LMX. And I should say, as a bit of context here, Christina, that for about a half century, the United Methodists have kind of had an uneasy alliance. The United Methodist Church was united from a bunch of different Methodist denominations back about 1968 or 69, and they've been debating full inclusion of LGBTQ people for a long time. Um, It pushed any discussion of sexuality, though, recently from its 2016 meeting to a special meeting that was supposed to take place in 2019, but delegates voted against ordaining LGBTQ people at that time, and that began another process of, well, okay, what do we do about that? Because a lot of the progressives wanted to leave. Well, a new plan was proposed that would split the denomination uh, in half. The split was supposed to be decided upon this year, but COVID-19 caused that meeting not to happen. The conference was canceled, and the decision was postponed until next fall. But these progressives uh, that announced the new denomination this week just, I guess, got tired of waiting. Uh, They announced the new denomination uh, over a Zoom call. About 40 or so leaders were on that call, but it's not sure how many actual congregations or individual members that the new denomination has. What do you mean? Well, because most of the 40 who were involved in the founding denomination called themselves liberationists were from small congregations, and they wouldn't say how many churches or individuals uh, that they were in touch with. If the number had been significant, at least it's been my experience as a journalist, they would have been very happy to say so. They would have announced it. And uh, Mark Tooley, who's the president of the Institute for Religion and Democracy, has been closely following events in the United Methodist Church. He himself is a Methodist, and has been following these controversies for most of his life. He said that this group uh, would be the first, could be the first of many Methodist groups that will uh, come in the wake of this breakup of the United Methodist Church. He told me that it will be hard to cohere for very long a denomination around 
identity politics without some core theology. Of course, traditionalists have their potential divisions as well, but they're more likely to cohere because they all subscribe to Orthodox theology. The United Methodist Church was created, as I said, in 1968, mostly based on theological pluralism, Martulli said, and he called that an experiment that we now know has failed. Warren, let's take a look at just one more story before we go to break, and that's the story of a Supreme Court decision in favor of religious liberty. Yeah, that's right. As tensions continue um, between coronavirus-related health restrictions and religious liberty, the Supreme Court uh, stepped into the fray, ruling last week in favor of houses of worship, barring the state of New York from enforcing limits on attendance at churches and synagogues in areas that had been previously designated as hard hit by the virus. The justices uh, voted five to four with Justice Amy Coney Barrett voting with the five in the majority. It was the conservative, the new conservative justice's first publicly discernible vote as a justice. There may have been some procedural votes behind closed doors, but this is the first time we've seen her take a stand in public. The court's three liberal justices and, interestingly enough, Chief Justice Roberts dissented. They were in the four in this 5-4 decision. The court's action on Wednesday, last Wednesday, could push uh, New York to reevaluate its restrictions on churches in areas designated as viral hotspots. But I should say that the impact of the court's decision is probably somewhat muted because the Catholic and Orthodox Jewish groups that had sued to challenge these restrictions are no longer subject to them. Their area is no longer considered a hot zone. Warren, we need to take a break, but when we return, the story of how gleaners are updating a biblical idea for the 21st century. I'm Christina Darnell, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and we'll be back after this short break. Hello everyone, I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Christina Darnell, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Warren, let's continue with the story I promised before the break. In the Bible, landowners were instructed not to harvest their crops all the way to the edge of their fields. And this practice allowed poor people to pick the leftovers and provide for their food needs. Yeah, that's right. And a number of Christian groups and other nonprofits are updating this practice for the 21st century. There's an association of gleaning organizations, in fact. It's a network of about 180 groups nationwide that uh, organize uh, volunteers to take 
unharvested food from fields. Sean Peterson is the executive director of this group, and he said that there's a tremendous amount of food that never even leaves the fields. In fact, a 2019 study conducted by Santa Clara University said that one-third of all produce never leaves the farm. Most of it gets plowed under or is otherwise just disposed of, becomes garbage. And that's where the gleaners, usually equipped with a little more than gloves and some kind of a clipper, can step into the situation. Sean Peterson, in fact, said that uh, he, in addition to running this gleaning organization, he's a volunteer himself, and he was on a glean, as he called it, this summer in Indiana. He said, I personally picked over a 1,000 pounds of cucumbers in about four hours, and there were 30 or 40 of us gleaners in the field. It's fascinating. But you said that some of these groups are faith-based and some are not. Yeah, that's right. The Society of St. Andrew is probably the largest of the faith-based groups. They're based in Virginia. Uh, It was founded by two Methodist ministers and their families who had been kind of part of the hippie back-to-land movement originally in the 1960s and 70s. But in 1983, these same ministers, now a little older, um, visited a church that was surrounded by potato fields. And In his sermon, one of these ministers said that there were thousands of pounds of potatoes that were left unharvested just beyond the church walls in the neighboring potato field. And a farmer in the congregation said, let's go pick those potatoes after worship. So they put on their grubby clothes back in 1983, rolled up their sleeves and went out and started digging. Sure enough, they found about 4,000 pounds of potatoes on that very first day. And that was the beginning of the organization. Since then, other local farmers have offered up their fields after they have harvested them through mechanical means. And ministers were soon gathering up to a quarter million pounds of potatoes uh, every year just in that state alone. The Society of St. Andrew, which was named after Jesus' disciple who helped feed the masses in the Sermon on the Mount, now has regional offices in about nine states, and they've gleaned more than 19 million pounds of produce in 24 states in 2019. And by the way, I should add that my wife uh, participates in one of the Society of St. Andrew's chapters here in North Carolina. That's an amazing story. Warren, next up takes us, though, from Muddy Fields to Ivory Towers. A group of seminary presidents has rejected critical race theory. So what is critical race theory, and why have they spoken out on this issue? Well, those are two great questions, but first a bit of background. Um, This year is the 20th anniversary of the adoption of the Southern Baptist Convention's Message of Faith. It's what they call the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, or BFM. So a coalition of Southern Baptist seminary presidents to celebrate the 20th anniversary released a statement uh, condemning critical race theory and calling it incompatible with the BF film. Uh, This is a portion of that statement. Let me read it to you. We stand together on historic Southern Baptist condemnations of racism in any form, and we declare that affirmation of critical race theory intersectionality, and any version of critical theory is incompatible with the Baptist faith and message. Jason Allen is the president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he said that critical theory and critical race theory, which is just a part of the larger umbrella critical theory movement, has roots in Marxism, uh, which, of course, is a prominent ideology that academic and social justice circles use to explain racial inequality. The six 
presidents acknowledge that racism still exists in the church, even in the Southern Baptist Church, but they affirmed that critical race theory is not a biblical solution to that problem. Allen said that we must be a people who stubbornly fight against both racism and against critical race theory while fighting for racial reconciliation in the truth of Scripture. In an article that appeared in the Baptist Press, uh, Southern Baptist Convention President J.D. Greer said that he, too, uh, was opposed to critical race theory. He approved the president's position. And Al Mohler, by the way, one of those presidents, the president of Southern Seminary, also signed that statement. Warren, let's hit a couple of stories quickly before we take another break. And let's start with Sean Foyt, who is back in the news. Yeah, Christian musician uh, Sean Foyt was uh, uh, planning to have another outdoor worship protest event in downtown Los Angeles on New Year's Eve at a site near the homeless community, Skid Row. Uh, But Foyt's tour, which he refers to as the Let Us Worship movement, has been receiving criticism from health officials as well as faith leaders in Los Angeles uh, for drawing thousands of spectators and worshipers. Many, uh, whenever he's done this at other events, have ignored social distancing guidelines and health orders requiring masks. But of course, as I suggested, that hasn't stopped him from doing these other events. He's done one in Seattle. He's done one in Nashville, Washington, D.C., and other cities around the United States. By the way, Sean Foyt is um, uh, someone who has ties to Bethel Community Church, the same church that we mentioned earlier in the podcast that was uh, a victim of that Ponzi scheme. Uh, So far, though, he hasn't applied for permits for the New Year's Eve event in Los Angeles, and a lot of homeless ministries say that an event in downtown L.A. would not be helpful to their ongoing work, and he hopes that he decides to take a pass. So, in other words, this story is still developing. Well, keep us posted, and you have one more brief story before the break. What is that? Yeah. I do. Uh, John Haggai, who has been called a leader of leaders, who helped kind of reinvent the strategy for global evangelism, died on November 18th at age 96. He was uh, a Southern Baptist pastor whose motto was, attempt something for God so great that it's doomed to failure unless God is in it. Eventually, Haggai International Institute for Advanced Leadership became a significant ministry. It trained preachers all around the world. In fact, since 1969, the Institute claims to have trained more than 120,000 evangelists from mostly non-Western nations. Uh, I should add the ministry has struggled in recent years as Haggai, who was in his late 80s before he transitioned uh, away from his leadership role there, uh, has had to kind of struggle. The, the organization's had to struggle to kind of figure out how to carry on without him. But there's no doubt that it has done great work over the years, and John Haggai was a faithful servant until the very end. We're going to take another break, but when we return, we're going to take a look at a ministry that has not slowed down during the COVID crisis. I'm Christina Darnell with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. 
Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Christina Darnell sitting in this week for Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Warren, I'd like to continue with the look at a ministry that offers life skills to young men that has found a way to continue and even grow during the COVID crisis. Yeah, it's a really great story uh, about Thomas McMillan Howard. He started an after-school program for three students in Greenwood, Mississippi about 10 years ago, and he said he'd never expected it to grow much beyond that, but now uh, it's become Delta Streets Academy uh, and has about 300 at-risk students in attendance. Now, Thomas McMillan Howard is kind of a mouthful, so he goes by TMAC, and he said, uh, our aim is to give these guys hope. There is a better way than the system that they've been involved with up to this point, he said, and the gospel gives them that hope. With hope, you get motivation. Well, and I understand that T-Mac's own story is pretty interesting. Yeah, it is. You know, T-Mac was kind of a normal college student. He did an internship in New Orleans, and um, that kind of set him on a career path of working with at-risk kids to learn life skills to succeed. Well, he finished the internship, graduated from college, and he scored kind of a dual position of of math teacher and coach at Greenwood High School in Greenwood, Mississippi, and began searching for a way to do ministry on the side. It was in August of 2010 that he launched that one-man after-school program where those first three students showed up, the three that I mentioned earlier. Uh, he uh, Pretty soon, though, he had 12 fifth and sixth graders. That was by the end of the first year. The next summer, 40 came to his summer program, and then the after-school program followed from there. But he noticed that some of the kids that were coming to his after-school program and his summer program were kids that were not, in fact, going to school at all. So he started a nonprofit school. Uh, Currently, 85 students are enrolled in Delta Street Academy, and Howard is now the head of school there. Well, that sounds great, but has the COVID pandemic had an impact on the school? Yeah, it really has. But amazingly, the impact has been mostly positive. When the pandemic hit, the teachers, of course, had to work twice as hard, Howard said, uh, using every bit of space so that they could spread the kids out and make sure that they were six feet apart, as well as creating some virtual options. But here's the interesting part. Many families had grown frustrated with the way the public schools were handling the pandemic, so they wanted to find an alternative. They enrolled their kids in TMAC school. He said that they, in fact, had to cap enrollment, that even with virtual options, they just ran out of teaching capacity. And I understand that TMAC has a unique approach to academics, too. Yeah, he really does. Academics are important to TMAC. After all, he was a math teacher himself. But he said that there are a lot of successful people in Greenwood, Mississippi, and all over the country who can't quote Shakespeare. Uh, he sa- he added that while academic subjects are all important, we're trying to ultimately equip these guys with a mindset of a good work ethic. Uh, T Mac says that he's trying to teach students grit 
and faith in Jesus. Uh, This is a direct quote from him. We're trying to equip these guys with the mindset that whatever you start, you finish it, and you do whatever it takes to do the task. Grit. It's hard to teach grit, and one of the best ways to teach it is simply to model it. That's a great story, and I understand there's a lot more to it. Well, there is, and our writer, who you work with a lot, Christina, Bethany Sterren, um, uh, went the extra mile, I think, on this story. It's a really great uh, tale, and you can read it, uh, read more about TMAC's approach by going to the Ministry Watch website. That story's right on the front page. Warren, let's close our time together with a few Ministry Watch updates. What do you have to share with us? Well, first, I want to remind folks that a few months ago, we started publishing a list of the top 10 stories of the month on our website. So on December 1st, earlier this week, we published a list of the most viewed stories on the Ministry Watch uh, website for the month of November. I won't run down the entire list with you, except to say that we have stories about Willow Creek Community Church up in Chicago, the Salvation Army, John MacArthur and John Piper, and Liberty University. But none of those stories were the top story for the month. To find out what that story is, I've got to send you to ministrywatch.com, and you'll see the entire list again right on the front page. Okay, so you're going to make us work for it. (laughs) Warren, (laughs) I know you're a list guy. You like lists. So you've got another list on the site this week. Yeah, we do. And I am. (laughs) Uh, Every year for 20 years, Ministry Watch has published its list of Shining Light Ministries. Uh, We get the name of this list from Matthew chapter 5. Jesus tells us there to let our light so shine that others will see our good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So the Shining Light Ministries, and there are only about 14 of them on this year's list, are those ministries that get both our top financial efficiency rating, that's a five-star rating, as well as our top transparency grade. That's a grade of A. Uh, There are some large and familiar ministries on that list, such as the Relief Organization Operation Blessing, but we also have some small, unknown, but really excellent ministries on the list as well, such as Christian Military Fellowship. And once again, you can see the complete list by going to the Ministry Watch website. The list is on the front page. Okay. Well, finally, Warren, you've been writing a lot about Giving Tuesday for the past few weeks. So how did Ministry Watch do? Well, I'm pleased to say that by God's grace and the generosity of some of the people listening to us right now, Christina, we received over $9,000 on Giving Tuesday. That far exceeds the amount that we received last year. In fact, it nearly doubled that amount. So if you're one of those people who gave to Ministry Watch on Giving Tuesday, I just want to say a really sincere and hearty thank you. And if you didn't, well, God bless you too. We'd love to have you as a listener and a reader nonetheless. And if you still want to support our ministry before year end, you can do so by going to ministrywatch.com and hitting the donate button right at the top of the page. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosel and Steve Gandy. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Goddard, Stephen Dubarry, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include J.C. Derrick, John Semakula, Emily McFarlane Miller, Jessica Gresco, Kimberly Winston, Alejandra Molina, Bethany Starin, and me, Christina Darnell. Thanks to our friends at the nonprofit Times, Religion Unplugged, and The Roy's Report for contributing material to this week's program. I'm Christina Darnell in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Warren Smith coming to you also from Charlotte, North Carolina. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch Podcast. Until next time, may God bless you. Bye.